Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Again, just to uh, reiterate what Butch was saying about Christmas Eve, you guys remember there's one morning service and one night service. What time is the morning service? Nine. Okay. You show up at eight, you're good. You're just an hour early. You show up at 10, you're ultra late. And, um, and that one's going to be a cakey choir and, and more kid uh, geared, or at least in the sense that we're going to have children's ministry as usual. I assume that more of the families will probably come to that first service. And then the night service is going to be more of a worship night type of an atmosphere. The kids will be in here I'm sure some people will come to both. Some will pick one or the other. All of the above is good. All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're continuing to celebrate our Advent season. And uh, Advent, of course, just speaks of the coming of Christ. And what we're saying during our Advent season is that we want to focus on what Christmas really is, right? And we've talked about in the past weeks how Our culture has gotten a little off track here and filled this time of year with a lot of foolishness and things that don't really mean anything. And uh, and what we're saying together as a church is is we don't want to get into that and get distracted by all of those things. We want to keep Christmas about what it was meant to be about, which is the fact that God sent Christ on a mission to save our souls, right? So we'll read through this text and then we will pray together. As we come to Luke chapter six, or chapter two, sorry, we'll begin in verse six. And what's going on here is Mary and Joseph have left their uh, adopted hometown of Nazareth, and they have traveled to Bethlehem, where they were supposed to register for a Roman census, and according with the decree of the governor, and um, and so they've headed there to their ancestral home. Town. They're both Mary and Joseph are of the line of David. David's hometown was Bethlehem, so they have to go back to Bethlehem to register. And that's where we pick up in verse 6 of Luke 2. And it says, while they were there, while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. The angel said to them, and this is key, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. That's what we're talking about this morning, great joy which will be for all of the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. And then suddenly there appeared with the one angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. And so at that moment, the quiet night suddenly bursts into exaltation as all of these angels join the one angel in exalting 
and praising the Lord. Verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherd began saying, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as they lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary, she treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back doing what? Glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen just as it had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that this morning, as we look at your mission to save our souls and the joy and the worship that take that took place on that very first Christmas night, we pray that you would stir in our heart, cultivate in our hearts a heart of worship, that we would take great joy in the salvation that you've given us, and that joy would then be turned around and expressed in our times of worship. And we ask now, that wherever we are with you, you would minister to each one of us right where we're at. That you, knowing our hearts, knowing us to, to the very core of each one of us, you would speak right to us, right what we need to hear right at this moment. We know that you have that capability. So take your precious word and speak to us now in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, well, what we see here as we read this text, and on the very night that Jesus was born was much rejoicing, right? We see worship and praising at his birth. And so what we're talking about this morning as we've been going along in our little Advent series and we've covered different topics having to do with Christmas This morning, what we're going to talk about is the fact that a part of Christmas should be worship, should be exaltation to the Lord, that there's a direct connection between worship and Christmas, and we see it here. And so what we want to do as we go through God's Word this morning is ask and allow God to cultivate in us a heart of worship as we prepare to celebrate Christmas in a week. And it is fitting that we talk about this now because joyful worship, praise and exaltation surrounded the whole birth of Christ and the news of Him coming. Almost nearly everyone involved in this whole scene and scenario of of Christ coming to earth worshiped as they heard the news. Even going back to the father and mother of of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, they exalted each individually when they heard that the Messiah was going to come. They were going to have this baby boy and he was going to be the one to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. And they worshiped. Even John the Baptist, unborn John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1 it says that he leaped for joy in his mother's womb, when Mary walked in the house and spoke to his mother Elizabeth. Even the baby that's unborn is worshiping this coming Messiah and full of joy. Of course, in Luke chapter 1, we have Mary's Magnificent, which is her song that she sang of praise and exaltation 
the Lord. And then in our text this morning here in Luke chapter 2, we have the angels that appear in the shepherds feel and they're worshiping, right? Suddenly there appeared with the one angel, a whole multitude of heavenly hosts, and they all began to praise the Lord, saying glory to God in the highest, which is quite significant if you think about that, because angels live in the presence of God, don't they? And so they if they're worshiping at this event, we know it's a big event, don't we? We, we understand that, that they spend their days in the presence of God, so they know what this moment in time means for God to step out of heaven and into humanity. And they understand how huge this event is for humanity. And they know the glory of the presence of the Lord. And so they rejoice at the fact that relationship between God and man now has this ability to be restored through this Savior and the angels worship. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it's talking about the gospel and how glorious the gospel is. And one of the kind of comments that's made about how great and glorious the gospel message is, is it says this, it says, and now this good news, this gospel has been announced to you by those who preach by the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then listen to what it says. And it says, and it's all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. That whenever the gospel's being preached, whether you're preaching it to your neighbor or your coworker or here on a Sunday morning or, or the birth of Jesus, the angels are sitting on the edge of their seat going, yes, please get saved, please get saved because I know how glorious Jesus is. Please come to Jesus because I know how good he is. They, they're longing to look at these things as the glorious gospel is being preached. And it says in Luke chapter 15, verses uh, 7, and I believe in verse 10, it says that the angels rejoice when one sinner gets saved. They rejoice. Why? Because they know how amazing it is for us to come to know Jesus. And so the angels are worshiping at Jesus' birth, and of course the shepherds are as well. We read that in verse 20 there in Luke chapter 2, that the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And then sometime later, I know we all have our little nativity sets, and the shepherds and the magi are all there. The magi came a little bit later, but sometime later when the magi came, they worshiped as well. And it tells us also that in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. They opened their treasures and they presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so you get my point, right? When we're talking about Christmas, if we look at the true Christmas story, what we see all around it is what? Worship and exaltation and the praise of the Lord. And so our point is this morning is that Christmas for us should be a time of, of great worship because worship is really, what it, what it really is by its very definition is an expression of the joy that we have in Christ because of who he is and what he's done for us. And we may fill this time of year with a whole lot of other things. But at the forefront of all of it should be worship. 
at the forefront of everything that we put in this time of year, it should be worship. We, we should worship our King. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But as this morning we're talking about Christmas and its connection to joy, we need to define joy right now. Biblical joy. What is real, true, biblical joy? Because if you remember back to last week, as we studied about hope last week, one of the things that we realized is there's a couple different ways to define hope, isn't there? There's a common everyday usage of hope, and then there's a biblical hope. And we said, well, there's a vast difference in the two. There's a vast difference in saying, I hope there's tacos at the party, compared to saying, Jesus is the hope of my salvation. Those two things are are vastly different. One is a mere wish, a vague optimism. The other is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, as we talked about last week. And so as there's a couple different ways to define hope, there's also a couple different ways to define joy. There's a common usage that we use of joy, and then there's a biblical usage that we use of joy. And the kind of common, typical dictionary definition of joy goes something like this. It's a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. It's delight, jubilation, or bliss. It's an emotion evoking good fortune. And all of that has to do with emotion, doesn't it? And feeling, and it's kind of surface level sense of happiness that we have. That's kind of how we commonly use joy and how the dictionary um, defines it. But, But real joy is different. And what I mean by real joy, I mean biblical joy. While it may cause some surface emotions, It's way, way deeper than that, isn't it? It's not merely a surface level feeling. I think what often happens for us is that joy often gets mistaken for happiness, right? They're two different things. But but real joy is not just feeling happy, is it? Because happiness is subject to your feelings and your feelings are subject to your circumstances and your circumstances can change quickly. And be happy one minute, not happy the next, right? An example, you could be having a great day. You could have just surfed like the best waves of your life, come in, got yourself a big fat shave ice, walking down the street, the birds are chirping, the, the sky's blue. It's a good day and you're happy, right? And you trip over the curb. You drop your surfboard and you ding it. You stub your toe, you drop your shave ice, your keys go down the storm drain. You, you're not happy anymore, are you? But did you lose the joy of your relationship with the Lord? No. Two different things, aren't they? You didn't, you didn't lose the joy that's in your heart from knowing Jesus. See, happiness is fickle. Joy is deeper than that. It's something that that transcends your circumstances. It's something that's an anchor for your soul. 
That, that's why Paul would write in the book of uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he would say, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. He said always in every circumstance there should be this ability to rejoice because our joy is deeper than our circumstances. And Paul was actually writing that from a jail cell in Rome. His circumstances weren't great. In fact, they were quite bad. But he still wrote and said, be joyful and rejoice always because biblical joy, it it transcends our feelings based in more than our circumstances. And so then it is entirely possible to go through incredibly difficult, tough times and still have joy in your heart. It's still entirely possible to go through very, very difficult circumstances and still be experiencing the joy of the Lord. I recently heard a a story, a true story, of a a Christian man, brother in the Lord, who was suffering from brain cancer and all of the horrible treatments that come along with it, right? All the sickness from all the medications, all the side effects and and all the horrible things, and he was in the hospital and having a very, very hard time. We'll call him Mr. Jones for, for the sake of the story. And a nurse came along and wrote in his chart, as she has to watch over him and see how he's doing, um, they, they watch out for their mental stability too, in case they need to call somebody if somebody's suicidal or, you know, I mean, you're going through a lot of stuff. They're pumping you full of a lot of drugs. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in this deal. And the outlook's bleak when you have something as bad as the brain cancer that he had. And, and the, the nurse wrote in his chart as a critical comment that Mr. Jones is inappropriately joyful. Inappropriately joyful. Because her view of his joy was not appropriate to his circumstances. But see, we know something, don't we? That that Christian joy is different. It's unique, isn't it? Because it's a joy that's attached to our eternity. It's a joy of salvation. Christian joy is not dismantled by tough circumstances, difficult and tragic things. Christian joy rather takes those things head on because it's based in the objective reality of who Christ is and what he's done and not in the subjection to our feelings. Now, here's where we connect joy in our Advent series to our past couple of weeks. There's a progression to this Advent thing. If you remember two weeks ago, we began talking about all the faithful promises of God, right? And that Christmas is a a promise of God and that God is faithful and that he's proven himself faithful by keeping all of these amazing promises that he gave. We call them prophecies, all these prophecies that he's made and he's never failed on a single one. We talked about that two weeks ago. And that his faithfulness is proven true. And that his character is proven noble. And that his grace has been proven extravagant. And that his love has been proven immeasurable. He promised a Savior and he did what? Gave us a Savior. 
He is faithful. Of course, we read 1 Peter 1.18 at that time, and we said, for, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life inherited from your ancestors, and that ransom was not paid with mere gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And God chose Him as your ransom long before the world began. Right? Or we, we read Ephesians 1, 4, where it says, even before He made the world, God what? Loved us, and He chose us in Christ Jesus. See, the Lord committed Himself to us before He even created us. That's how much He loves us. That's how faithful He is. And so then the following week, last week, we talked about hope, didn't we? The second week on Advent. And we saw that hope is all about future, isn't it? Hope is longing for something better and looking forward to a future that's, by, that's better than our present. And when we don't believe that there's any future for us, then we become despondent and hopeless. If we don't have anything ahead of us that looks better than our, our present, then we become hopeless. And the point that we were making is there's only a true, transcendent, eternal hope in Jesus Christ because there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men by, my, by which we must be saved. But we said, because Jesus came to earth, right, Christmas, because he lived a sinless life that qualified him then to die an atoning death for our sins and set us free from the power and the penalty of sin. He rose from the grave, proving that he alone has the power of the death over death so that now all who come to him by faith can be confident that their forever is taken care of. And no matter what difficult thing you or I go through in this life, our future is set and secure in Christ. Our forever is glorious in the presence of God. Therefore, we have hope, right? Anybody remember that? We talked about 1 Peter 1.3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That's biblical hope, right? That's biblical hope. And then Jesus said, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That's biblical hope, that on your last day, when you close your eyes on this earth, you open your eyes in heaven, and it's Jesus who raised you up. That's hope. That's biblical hope. And that's why Paul would then write to the Romans, and he would say, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. He's writing about biblical hope. And then he would write to the Corinthians and say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's biblical hope. And so our point is that the faithfulness and the love and the commitment that God displayed to us through the cross and that hope of heaven that Jesus died to buy us 
by our souls through the blood of Christ, through the precious blood of Christ, and the endless relationship which awaits us as our inheritance with God, should then that, that promise, that faithfulness, that hope should cause in our hearts joy, deep joy, not circumstantial joy, deep deep joy, eternal joy that's not subject to what's going on in your life, but it's anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's Christmas joy. Because in Christ, we have everything. In this life and in the next, we've got nothing to fear and we gain all things in Christ. And so for that very reason, every single born-again believer who has come to Christ should be filled with joy. How's your joy this morning? Now, here's where we're going to connect joy and worship. Because joy is supposed to be expressed. A little different than the first two weeks of Advent. The faithful promises of God are something that we have and trust in and hold on to. And the hope that we have in God is something that we have and trust and hold on to. But the joy that we have in God is meant to be expressed. God's faithfulness, God's hope in this restored relationship that we have with Christ, it's something to be experienced. But joy is not only to be experienced, it's also to be expressed. And we do that in times of worship. And if you have any doubts about that, all you need to do is read through the Psalms. Because over and over and over again, it calls us to joyful expressions to the Lord. If your heart's filled with joy, then sing it out, shout it out, play your instruments, go for it. Worship the Lord over and over throughout the Psalms. Psalm 511, for example. Let all who take refuge in you, in the Lord, be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. If you you have your refuge in God and your heart's full of joy, then sing about it. In Psalm 81, it says, sing for joy to the God of our strength. Sing or shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song with string and timbrel and a sweet sounding lyre and harp. Or Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with, come before his presence with thanksgiving and let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Psalm 92. It's good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. To declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night with the ten-string loop and the harp, resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. Psalm 71, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul, which you have redeemed. 
And it goes on, doesn't it, from there? You're going to be hard-pressed to read through the Psalms very long and not see that joy is meant to be expressed. And the point is that as we look at all of these verses and we understand who God is and what He's done for us, the joy that is within our heart is meant to be expressed in worship. And therefore, Christmas should be a great time of worship for us. Because what worship really is, is an expression of the joy that we have in our heart for what Christ has done for us. And at Christmas, what we're doing is we're celebrating what Christ's coming brought to us. And he brought us hope when we were hopeless. And he brought us peace when we were alienated and enemies against God. And he brought us love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And because all of those things, we ought to have joy. And that joy ought to be expressed in times of worship. On the night that Jesus was born, the angels appeared to the shepherds. And they said, I bring you great news, good news of great joy all the people, that a Savior's been born for you. So the angels appear to these shepherds as they're in their field, and they say, I got good news. I've got the gospel for you. There's a Savior, and he happens to be laying in a town nearby in a manger, and that's going to bring great joy. And then those who understood what this meant most, we in humanity, we don't really get it quite yet. But those who understood what it means to actually physically be in the presence of the Lord lit up the night sky with praise and exaltation as one angel was then joined by, it says, a multitude of angels. You see, having this Savior ought to bring us great joy. And any real understanding of what's been done for you and I ought to then turn into worship, don't you think? So Christmas, it's truly the fulfillment of God's faithful promises. It's all about the hope, but it's also all about the joy. And so as we go into a time of worship now, and the next week, and then next Sunday night, the evening service is going to be all worship and, and exaltation. We need to take the time to remember what Christ has done for us. That's what I always talk about when I say preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Christ has done for you, what you were before you had him and what you are now, what you would be without him and what your future holds for you in him. And that ought to be turned into glorious worship. So let's pray and worship. Nothing else to say but worship. Lord, we, um, we're in awe of the fact that you, as the creator of the universe, God and only sovereign, that you left heaven and came to earth, that you left perfection and came into our sin-soaked world, and that you died on a tree that you created for the sins of us, who don't deserve it. 
There's nothing to say about that except that it's sheer grace and love. And um, we ask that that grace and love would overwhelm us now. We ask that the truth of our future, the fact that we have eternity awaiting us in your presence, would overwhelm us now. That as tough as things may ever get in this life, that eye has never seen, ear has never heard, and our minds have never imagined what you have in store for us on the day that you raise us up to true life, eternal life with you. And we pray that those truths now would begin to stir in our heart and we would respond rightly in worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.